so in addition to all these things that my dad was telling me, all the conversation there was about sex in general, he had two other sort of favorite topics when it came to me. One was as I started growing into my body. So when I was about 11, the conversation started about how I was getting fat. If I wasn't careful, I'd end up looking like my mother and that boys don't like girls who aren't skinny. All very heteronormative also. And then the other topic was, and this was like, this was said at least on a weekly basis, if not more. I'm going to lock you in your room until 30, and I'm going to break the kneecaps of any boy who shows interest in you. So I had two absolutely polar opposite messages. One was that I'm completely unlovable and unattractive. And the other is that I am so desirable that I need to be protected from the world. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Leah Carey. She's a sex and intimacy coach and host of the podcast, Good Girls Talk About Sex. Welcome, Leah. Thank you so much. I'm really pleased to be here. I'm so happy you're here, and I'm really excited to talk with you about your story and the work that you're doing now. So in an earlier conversation, you mentioned to me that when you were growing up, you had very different messages about your body and sex than than how you feel and how you live now. Mm. And and before we dive into what your current work and outlook are, I'm curious if you can take me back a little bit to one of your earliest memories of feeling like what you were doing or your body wasn't right in your family. Mm. Oh my gosh, what a big question. Um, I'm going to have to say that I don't have an earliest memory because a lot of my childhood is big black spots. Oh. Um, I grew up in a home with a father who he wanted so much to be a good father. And that's, that is a space of grace that I have come to in the Mm -hmm. last 10 years that I did not have for him earlier in my life. Mm -hmm. He really wanted to be a good father. He just had no skills. He had no um, role models in his own childhood home about what good parenting looked like. And um, he was dealing with a lot of his own demons. Mm -hmm. And what that turned into was alcoholism and a lot of emotionally abusive behavior with me and my mom. Mm -hmm. And um, as a result, I have sort of snapshots of moments from my childhood. I have a lot of real strong feeling memories about what was going on in my childhood, Mm -hmm. but I have very few actual tangible memories. Oh, were you, were you an only child? Yes. Yeah. Ah. And, um, and I was very much like my mom you know, temperamental, I, maybe that's not fair to say, <laughs> emotionally. <laughs> she and I were both very emotional people. And I just, you know, I was a real amalgamation of mm-hmm. aspects of both my mom and my dad. And I think that all my dad saw was how much I was like my mom. And he was like, he 
would tell me how unhappy he was with her. He talked to me about their sex life and how unhappy he was with it. Mm. Um, And then he would try to sort of beat those things out of me, those uh, traits that were like my mom. Meanwhile, I saw how destructive my father's traits were. And so I was trying to beat those out of myself. (laughs) Oh, And what was I left with? I was left with absolutely no idea about who I was supposed to be, except that I was supposed to be a perfect little girl who would make other people happy, you know, Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I just turned into somebody who really tried to not be seen. Um, Ironically, I was really into theater. Mm -hmm. Um, I was a theater kid. I I wanted to be on stage as much as possible. But I think that that has a lot to do with being able to be seen in a way that was safe, because I was speaking other people's words. Mm -hmm. I had a script. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to try to imagine what was expected of me. And also you had like a director to say, this is what you're supposed to do. This is required. So there's like a safety in that. Exactly. When it came to me actually having to show up as myself, I had no bloody idea who to be or how to act. This is very complex. Mm. So just on a side note, when your parents, well, did they come and see you perform? My mom did. She actually loved coming to watch every single rehearsal, which mm-hmm. was, uh, <laughs> which I think of now and I'm like, oh my God, mom, it was high school theater. The, the performances were bad enough and you came to the rehearsals too? Well, that's funny because all I'm thinking of is thinking about my kids now who are teenagers is that they wouldn't want me there every day for the rehearsals. No. But maybe, maybe you and your mom were super, super close. We were super close, which was very much a result of how my dad was. Mm-hmm. You know, she was my only stable place. She was, she was the person who let me know that I was okay in the world. And I thank God that I had her because if I hadn't, I don't know where I would have ended up or how I would have ended up. But just because she was telling me I was okay in the world and I relied on that 100% didn't mean that I believed that I was okay in the world. Oh, yeah. She was the person who my dad was constantly bad mouthing and putting down. And so and he was the loudest voice in my head. Mm. So she would tell me the things that I needed to hear. And on some level, I took them in. But at the same time, I didn't really believe her. So, yeah, it was it was complicated. You know, I'm interested. There's so much there's so many questions I have. And I'm wondering, it sounds like your father badmouthed her a lot and was inappropriate with you, uh, you know, at least verbally and certainly abusive. Did your mom talk about your father or try to what, what was her? What was her way of coping with this? Was it head on or was it denial or what? How did you experience her experience? She was somebody who would um, suppress things a lot. Mm -hmm. She would sort of just deal and deal and deal with things until the moment that she exploded. Mm. And so, you know, again, another lesson that I took in from that was don't trust people who are being quiet 
because mm-hmm. at some point they're going to explode and your world is going to end. <laughs> right. And um, that can cause problems for me now with my partner because he is somebody who just temperamentally is a quiet person, not mm-hmm. because he's holding things in, not because he's <laughs> stewing, but just mm-hmm. because he's a quiet person. And there are times when I am terrified mm-hmm. and I have to like, I, it's not uncommon for me to have to go to him and say, are you just being quiet or are you mad at me? You know, I completely understand what you're talking about. I have a very similar uh, reaction to quiet and I'm a face reader. Mm. I've been a face reader for my whole life because in the absence of information, I would try to figure out what was going on. Yes. Do you, did you have family around you on your mom's side or your father's side at all? Any other relatives that could kind of reflect or offer you any perspective other than your family's? No. It was, um, my father was basically estranged from his family. So Mm -hmm. um, that part of the family, I maybe met twice in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, My mother's family lived in a different part of the country, and she had a really strained relationship with them. So while I saw them more frequently, there was no sense of trust with them. Mm -hmm. So it really was just the three of us. And my father... He was, um, so I didn't learn anything about narcissistic behavior until Trump was elected. <laughs> His election was <laughs> a major wake-up call. Crash course. <laughs> yes. Um, I would not, my father died 20 years ago, so mm. I would not... Uh, ever want to like posthumously try to diagnose him with something. Mm. So I'm certainly not going to say he was a narcissist, but I will say based on the reading I've done, he, he demonstrated a lot of narcissistic behavioral traits. Did your mom try at all to mitigate what was happening between her and your father or your father and you when it was happening in the house? Oh my God. So I, can't answer the part about what was going on between her and my dad because again I don't have real clear memories yeah but she oh my god this is such a big story uh let me see if I can figure out the cliff notes piece (laughs) no 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 I mean go ahead okay so early on when I was born and let me say that she did not tell me this story until 10 years after he was dead Mm-hmm. Um, I was well into my 30s. So she protected me from all of this information. When I was born, she was beginning to understand the effects of alcohol in their relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think that she was considering what her life would look like if she left him. Mm-hmm. And he, now I don't know if she actually said that to him or if he just sort of intuited it, because he was a very smart man. He went to her one day and said, if you ever leave me, I will take Leah and you will never see her again. Hmm. And that he, uh, he was the kind of person who had the kind of contacts and the kind of knowledge to make those kinds of threats really scary. Hmm. And so I then grew up into a teenager not knowing that and getting really, really angry at my mom. Mm -hmm. for not, quote unquote, protecting me. Mm -hmm. 
I did not understand until I was in my 30s that what she was doing by staying, because my thought was, why didn't she leave him and take Mm -hmm. me away from this? What she was doing by staying was protecting me the best way that she knew how, because she, in her mind, the other option was if she left and tried to take me, he would somehow get in the middle and he would then take me and I would be left alone with him. At least if she stayed, there was a buffer between me and him. Yes, that makes total sense. And it also makes total sense that you would resent her or wonder what you were missing for her to stay. And, And did she stay with him after you grew up? They got, they separated they never actually said they were separated, but they were living in separate states for, uh, from the time I was a, I think I was either a sophomore or high school. And then he demanded a divorce when I was a freshman in college because he had decided he was going to marry somebody else, whether he was divorced from her or not. Hmm. Okay. And did you, did you stay in touch with him when you grew up? Did you, did you have a relationship with him? We were estranged for about two and a half years while I was in college. Um, Mm -hmm. And he, in fact, uh, part of the divorce agreement decree was that he was responsible for paying for my my college and my health care. And when basically I said something to him when I was halfway through my sophomore year of college that made him so angry, it was not actually anything. (laughs) Like, literally, I did not say anything to him, but he took it to be an attack on him. Mm -hmm. And he stopped speaking to me. He he sent me a letter saying, I will no longer pay for you to be in college because you're not worth it. Mm -hmm. Um, He sent letters to to my university saying you can I'm not paying anymore. You can cook her out for all I care. Um, what, was, what did you do? I was very, very lucky in that um, I had to have a an on-campus work-study job, and I had chosen to have my work-study job in the financial aid office. So oh. all of the – and that was just happenstance. Mm-hmm. But now I recommend to anybody who's going to college on any kind of scholarship <laughs> or financial need, get your job in the financial aid office. <laughs> because then when the worst thing happened, all of those people were my friends. Mm-hmm. And my financial aid counselor, when she got this letter, she called me into her office and she said, do you want to make peace with your father? And I said, not really. And she said, okay, I won't make you. We'll figure out a way to keep you in school. Mm, Wow. Wow, wow. It was an amazing blessing. Yeah. And then I got to senior year and I'm getting ready to graduate. And all of a sudden he wants to be part of my life again. So he can be so proud of, Mm -hmm. you know, and I was like, screw you. You don't get to be proud of something that you told me I could not and should not do. And so by the time... By the time he died, were you in touch with him? We had been back in touch for um, maybe three years at that point. It was very strained, although I don't know that you would have noticed that it was strained if you sat and listened to us have a conversation. Mm -hmm. But I was on high alert all the time. If Mm -hmm. I was going to see him, 
I picked out my clothes as if I was having a first date because mm-hmm. it was like my armor, you know, mm-hmm. like I wanted to make sure that there was nothing he could criticize. Before I saw him, I planned out the topics that I was willing to talk about with him and what the topics were that I was not willing to talk about and how I was going to distract him or change the conversation if they mm-hmm. came up. It was like I pre-planned all of my interactions with him. Mm -hmm. And so there was never a sense of peace. Mm -mm. No, I can I can hear that. Mm -hmm. So I was hoping to dive a little bit deeper into this idea of boundaries. And because work with, you know, sex work and and body image and confidence um, is so much part of the work you do now. So I'm wondering if you can paint a little bit of a picture of what, what talk of sex or sexuality was like in your home with him yeah so this is another really sort of complicated area with as everything with my dad was there was a lot of conversation about sex in my home but it was all super inappropriate I and I want to be really really clear that I I absolutely don't think that talking about sex with kids is inappropriate. Yes, I, think I hear it's, that. It's to- in fact, it's really important. Mm-hmm. However, the way that it was happening in my home was was pretty damaging in that, like I mentioned before, he talked about his sex life with my mother to me and told me how unhappy he was with it. He talked sexually to me about my body. Mm-hmm. He spoke to women who were not my mother sexually in front of me. Mm. Um, And then there was a ton of sexual material around our house. So there were boxes and boxes of um, Penthouse and Playboy. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a magazine called Variations. Penthouse and Playboy, I actually found really interesting, (laughs) 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 which would become clear later when I realized I was bisexual. I was like, Uh oh, that's what that was about. (laughs) But the Variations magazine really scared me. I have not heard of that one. So it is about what we would call today like alternative sexual choices, swinging, threesomes, bondage, that kind of stuff. Stuff that today I'm like, oh, that's perfectly great. Like, I'm into it. Let's talk about it. But as a 10-year-old kid, really scary. No, I mean, did your mom do anything to try to help? uh, I mean, that's a silly question. How did your mom react to having all of this material around it wasn't ever talked about hmm right so it was sort of like an unspoken rule would you say like the rules of your family yeah I don't know if she was in denial I don't know if she decided that just wasn't a hill that she wanted to to climb I don't yeah. know yeah yeah I mean I guess maybe when you're fighting for your safety and your emotional sanity it might be you have to choose what you're gonna fight for right like and and it's also it's sort of interesting I mean it's like he just did these things it sounds like and no one was there to stop him because no one could and it just became accepted and Mm -hmm. and what I wonder about is if you had friends over how did that go and 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 how did you explain it even to yourself so you could deal with it uh I didn't have a lot of friends over Mm-hmm. These things were readily accessible, but it wasn't like they were sitting out on the, you know, on the dining room table. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents, when I was a kid, my parents owned an inn and we lived in the inn. So the 
you know, the public spaces were sanitized. Right. <laughs> All right. the and that's where anybody who came over to play would have been. This stuff was sort of in other places, but again, it was it was readily accessible. So how did you deal as you hit puberty and adolescence how, and your own emerging sexuality? How did you handle this kind of attention and conversation from your father? I totally shut it down. I Yeah. So the so in addition to all these things that my dad was telling me, uh, uh, all the conversation there was about sex in general. He had two other sort of favorite topics when it came to me. One was um, as I started growing into my body. So when I was about 11, the conversation started about how I was getting fat. Um, if I wasn't careful, I'd end up looking like my mother mm-hmm. and that boys don't like girls who aren't skinny. Mm-hmm. Um, all very heteronormative mm-hmm. <laughs> also. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And then the other um, topic was, and this was like, this was said at least on a weekly basis, if not more. I'm going to lock you in your room until 30, and I'm going to break the kneecaps of any boy who shows interest in you. Yikes. So I had two absolutely polar opposite messages. One was that I'm completely unlovable and unattractive. And the other is that I am so desirable Mm. that I need to be protected from the world. And there is no way to square... (laughs) Those Mm-mm. two messages. So what I took away from that was it is I am completely unlovable. And if anyone were to see me, I would be attacked. Hmm. So what I did was just try to disappear. You know, I just tried to be as invisible as possible. I wore baggy sweaters. I, you know, I just generally tried to fade into the background so no one would see me. At the same time, my hormones were starting. Yeah. <laughs> I was, you know, boy crazy mm-hmm. uh, and later girl crazy. But while those thoughts were swirling in my mind and I was like desperately wanting to have that sort of, you know, to have somebody who wanted to love me, I was completely incapable of reaching out to anybody and allowing that kind of relationship to develop. That makes a lot of sense. Did you, did you try to stay out of the house at all? Did you, did you, how did you handle like living in your house? Cause I know as a teenager, so many kids are counting down the days. Mm. Uh, so many kids need more space. I mean, I've, I've, yeah, I've experienced that as a child myself and you know, where do you go? How do you carve out a space for yourself? Yeah. And, you know, what did you do? So here's another place where my mother was brilliant in taking care of me. Um, I was in a local uh, junior high school, and it was a pretty miserable experience. Um, It just was not a good fit for me. And at the same time, while I was in junior high school, my father, there was only one time that he put his hands on me. Um sexually. And that happened in junior high school. Mm. And I told my mom about it immediately. The day after Mm. it happened, I told her. And, you know, in my mind, I didn't see her doing anything. She didn't kick him out. She didn't, you know, she didn't do anything. But she figured out a way to 
get him to think that sending me to boarding school was his idea. (laughs) (laughs) It was brilliant. Mm. She managed, because obviously it wouldn't have happened if he thought it was her idea. Mm-hmm. But she planted the idea in his head and got him to to think it was such a good idea that was his, that he was the one who was pushing me out of the house to go wow. to boarding school. And so you did? And so I did. Yeah, it was it was incredible. It was not only was it a great choice for me academically, but I think it's another way that my mom saved my life without me knowing. And it literally was not until my mid thirties that I put all this together. I remember oh, I was, yeah. I was, um, <laughs> it was in the bathtub one night and suddenly all of the pieces clicked into place <laughs> and I had my cell phone sitting there cause mm-hmm. you know, why wouldn't you? <laughs> yes. Well, I know I do the same. I do the same. <laughs> and, uh, I picked up my cell phone and I called my mom And I'm sitting there in the tub sobbing. I'm like, Mom, I finally got it. You you convinced him to send me to boarding school. And she started sobbing Mm. because she finally, like she had never told me. She she tried really hard to Mm -hmm. not get in the middle of my relationship with him because it was difficult enough. I just she she worked so hard and I I can imagine how complicated it was for her to keep all of these plates spinning and to protect you and to keep herself safe and I can also imagine how painful it was for her not to be able to let you know the ways in which she was trying to keep you safe and raise you and I also have space here to to hear how sad or disappointed or hurt you were because you didn't understand why things weren't different. Exactly. I mean, just because a child is hurt doesn't mean that the parent is intentionally hurting them. She was actually doing the very, very best that she could in a really shitty situation. Yeah. And so you've described her as your best friend. Mm-hmm. And, and when did you lose her? So she passed away in December 2015. So, and that actually, you know, your show is And Then Everything Changed. That is for me when everything changed. Can you explain that a little bit? It is, um, oh, it's hard because she was my best friend. And um as I grew into adulthood, she and I both worked really consciously to heal our relationship. Uh, we had always been close, but it had been a very um, enmeshed kind of, there was some a lot of dysfunction in our closeness. Mm-hmm. And um, as I was in my 30s, we really did the work to heal our relationship. And then I think I was about 39 when she was diagnosed with cancer. I was her companion through that mm-hmm. journey. We, we lived 10 minutes from each other. So mm-hmm. um, I was able to be with her through that whole thing, along with her best friend. The three of us did it together. Mm-hmm. And I could not conceive of what my life would look like after she was gone. It was, um, they found the cancer too late. So mm-hmm. while we had two years together, um, there was really not a realistic option that she was going to survive it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I spent a lot of time in absolute terror of what life, <laughs> whew, uh, what life was going to look like without my mom. Um, one of the things that she was able to do for me, and, and again, I was her only child, so um, she owned her house free and clear. Mm-hmm. So I was able to sell it. She made me promise multiple mm. times. Oh my gosh, <laughs> how many times we had this conversation. She made me promise that I would not do anything with the house until a year had passed. She wanted to make sure, because she knew that I have a tendency to be impulsive. (laughs) (laughs) So she wanted to make sure that I didn't make any decisions that I would later regret. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I did. I waited almost exactly a year. Mm -hmm. And I was not ready to make the decision until pretty much a year had passed. But then I I decided I was ready to let go of the house. Um, And I sold it which gave me the funds to take a solo road trip around the country for, you know, an extended period of time. And um, I wasn't really sure. I knew, uh, the only reason I was still living in New Hampshire at that point was because my mom was there. Once mm-hmm. she passed away, there was absolutely no reason for me to stay. Mm-hmm. So I knew that this road trip was going to be an opportunity for me to see the rest of the country and figure out where I wanted to settle next. Mm-hmm. What it turned into was a journey of intense sexual awakening and sexual healing. Mm-hmm. And I joke that if I had known that was coming, I would still be under my covers in bed in New Hampshire <laughs> because I would not have believed that I was capable of doing what I ended up doing. (laughs) So can you talk a little bit about this uh, road trip? Yes. (laughs) So um, I did all the things. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But I mean, like, did it unfold slowly? Or were like, how did you how did this even begin? So it basically I was I was literally on the road for about six months. And then I fooled myself. I got to Portland, Oregon, and I spent another six months (laughs) pretending that I was going to leave at some point. (laughs) So I was still like in my mind, still on my road trip. But I was Uh actually at that point settling in Portland, Oregon. Um, So the first thing that I did. okay, let me back up. While (laughs) I was during that year of cleaning out mom's house and just sort of reorienting my head to what life was going to look like without her there. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a couple of uh, sexual dalliances, Mm -hmm. shall we say. I had, until that point, I'm 41 at this point, I had never had sex outside of a relationship. And the majority of my relationships had been some level of emotionally abusive. They just very much mirrored my relationship with my dad. Mm Mm-hmm. So she dies and I'm like, I guess maybe I can have some fun. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like I think what happened was there was this idea in my head of myself as a quote unquote good girl. Mm -hmm. And once she died, I no longer had any ties. Mm -hmm. Like there was nobody who I was still trying to perform that good girlness for. Yeah. And so I just sort of like, 
did a bunch of things. One of them was, you know, going on dating apps and meeting people. And I had a, I think there were three people during that year who I met and, you know, had sexual encounters with that were totally outside of relationship territory. Mm -hmm. One of them had said to me while we were chatting before we met, he had said to me, oh, and also one of those people was a woman. So I finally got to have my first experience with a woman, which mm-hmm. I had been waiting for for like 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> but but this particular experience was with a guy. Um, and he said to me while we were chatting before we met, I'm really into um, tantric sex and tantric massage. Mm-hmm. Oh, specifically, he said tantric massage. And so I, you know, looked that up because I was not really familiar with that term. And I was like, oh, this sounds amazing because it's about <laughs> like getting your sexual energy flowing. But also I read about how um, some tantric massage can help to awaken sexual, not just sexual energy, but sexual sensation, which mm-hmm. was an issue that I had always had was that people touched me and I sort of felt numb. Hmm. Um, I could feel just, you know, if you touched my arm while we were talking, I could feel that. But as soon as this tur- the touch turned sexual, my body numbed out. Which makes some sense, doesn't it, considering how the trauma of growing up? Well, as I look back at it now, from what I know now, it makes total sense. Hmm. From what I thought then, I just thought I was broken. I thought there mm-hmm. was something terribly wrong with me. Mm-hmm. So this guy suggests that we do this tantric massage. And I'm like, ooh, regaining sensation. I, let's, yes, let's do this. <laughs> so it turns out his version of tantric massage was, I rub you for a few minutes, then we have sex, <laughs> which is not tantric <laughs> massage at all. <laughs> it was a line, right? It was yeah. a line. <laughs> it was a very lay person's version of what tantric <laughs> massage might be, <laughs> but isn't. <laughs> so anyway... Um, I, I get started on this road trip and one of my f- early stops was going to be New York City to visit a bunch of friends. And I figured, well, in New York City, you can find anything. So I started doing some web searches for tantric massage people in New York, uh, in Manhattan. And I came across this woman's website, um, I, I want to be super clear because I mm-hmm. think it's really important to know that people who do this work, even though it is healing work, are sex workers. Mm-hmm. And so when when people are out there, you know, making fun of sex workers and putting down the work that they do, it's so important to know that so much of the work that is being done by sex workers is healing work is work helping people who don't have enough tough enough touch in their lives mm-hmm. to get the touch that they need. I can go on a whole other rant about this. I will I'll end it there. But... No, but I think it's important to I think it's important to talk about. I mean, yeah. not everyone knows that. I mean, it's kind of news to me in a way. Mm. Yeah. I I have become a staunch advocate for sex workers um because the work that they do is so deeply important. In the, mm-hmm. especially in this culture where we are so sex negative. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I find this woman's website. She is a sex worker. That's clear from her website. But one of the things that she offers is tantric massage for women. And so I contacted her. I was absolutely terrified, mm-hmm. like crying, mm-hmm. not sure I was able to say the words, kind of terrified. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but she she wanted to do a phone call with me before we met. And I figured that this was going to be just a voice verification call to make sure I was a real person. Mm-hmm. But in fact, she took a full sexual history from me and really dove into what were the things that I wanted to work on because I was only going to have one session with her because mm. I was traveling. Mm-hmm. Um, we ended up doing a three-hour session. And uh, to answer people's questions, yes, it was expensive. <laughs> but it was also some of the best money I've ever spent because at the end of the three hours, she sat down with me She looked me in the eyes and she said, you are not broken. Hmm. And those were the the words I desperately needed to hear. Mm -hmm. That there was not something terribly wrong with me. She was able to say, and I was able to believe her because she was a professional and Mm -hmm. not just somebody who wanted to get in my pants. Mm -hmm. She was a professional who was able to say to me, I know And I have witnessed the female sexual response cycle and your body goes through all of those pieces of the cycle Mm -hmm. exactly the way that I would expect them to. She said, the fact that you're not feeling the sensation means that there's there's some emotional block in your body Mm -hmm. to you actually, you know, recognizing that you're feeling them, but your body is going through all of the physical responses. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then you kind of had this, was it like a recalibration or? Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it took me several days to start to integrate what she was saying, because at first I was just like, I was, (laughs) I think I was in some version of shock, you know, (laughs) like, what do you mean I'm not broken? My identity was so firmly rooted in this idea sure. that I was broken. And and are you also saying then, should I, should I understand that when you were having your sexual connections and, and what you call dalliances mm-hmm. with people on your trip, that you, you were having sex, but you were numb or not feeling like you were doing what your body was supposed to do, even though it was on some level? So prior to leaving for the trip, when I had those sort of what I call dalliances, Mm -hmm. um, yes, exactly. I was having sex with these people and I would get some minimal amount of pleasure, but I really think that that pleasure came from just the fact that I was getting my skin touched Yeah, and from connecting with another person. It had very little to do with actual sexual satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Um, is very difficult for me to orgasm. Um, and I just really didn't feel much. Mm-hmm. So then right. she says to me, you're not broken. You just have some stuff to work through. That then gave me a permission that I had never had or never felt like I had to explore because my expectation had always been that if I opened myself up to somebody, their response was going to be, first of all, uh, your body is gross, put, put your clothes back on. Mm-hmm. Um, and second of all, you're broken. Because I'd had multiple partners tell me that I was broken. Mm, interesting. 
And I had multiple partners tell me that I was fat and gross. Well, not in those words, but. But I think it's important because, you know, I want to mention that you are now someone who is in command of your story. You have perspective. I know that your story is unfolding like all of our stories, but you have this idea of where you came from and what you experienced and, and, and where you are now. And it occurred to me when you were talking a little bit earlier, and it's occurring to me again now that, you know, this is all this history that is kind of. coalesced and make some sense now but at the time when you were going through it you were probably confused and hurt and you didn't have an understanding of of what to compare yourself to and Mm -hmm. how would you know that things were different than you thought they were and so we're getting the story from the other side when you have found your way so to speak but there were plenty of years there and experiences where that wasn't the case exactly that you said that so beautifully Mm -hmm. I'm giving you sort of the processed version of my story Mm -hmm. in which I have the understanding of many years of processing and refiguring when I was inside of it all I could have told you was I'm broken and this hurts too fucking much Mm mm-hmm yeah. So then where did you find the courage to, I mean, you had this, this massage and this awakening, but how did you find the courage to continue to pursue relationships or to be strong enough to put yourself out there? So the first thing that I, um, okay. Again, the Cliff Notes version. <laughs> There's so much well, here. That's, that's why people have to listen to your podcast, right? So they can get more of you. Yes. <laughs> and I also, I have a manuscript of, of, this, of this journey mm-hmm. that I was writing as I was taking it, mm-hmm. um, that I'm still waiting. If there are any publishers out there who are desperately <laughs> looking to take this on, yeah. contact me. But um, <laughs> Call me. <laughs> um, one of the first things that happened, one of the first stops I made after leaving New York City was to visit a friend of mine in Maryland. And she was a former uh, Clinique counter girl. Mm -hmm. Um, So she like she knows all about makeup and about, you know, all that fun girly stuff that I knew nothing about. Like that was just not a part of my world. Mm. One day when I was visit and I was staying in a hotel. um, So one day I went over to her house and we did she put makeup on me and then we went out and we got a manicure and a pedicure, something I had never done before. Mm. And when I was walking back into my hotel that night, I started having a panic attack as I like uh, walked from my car to the front entrance of the hotel because I thought, oh my God, I've got nail polish and makeup on. People are going to see me and someone's going to attack me. So I still was completely soaked in this idea that I had to be locked in my room until I was 30. Mm -hmm. And any boy who showed interest in me needed to have his kneecaps broken. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I managed to get myself through the lobby and up to my room, at which point I had a full blown panic attack. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, That was when it became clear to me that this was not just a sex issue. This was a, like, how I see myself, how I see my body, my safety in the world. And and there were a lot of things that just sort of happened at the right moment during my trip. It was, I like to say that my mom was watching over me and Mm -hmm. was sort of 
giving me exactly what I needed in every given moment. Mm -hmm. It was right around that time that an article showed up, I think on my Facebook timeline, um, of this woman who I went to read her article. It was about nothing to do with body image, but I was so interested in what she was writing that I started clicking around her website and saw that she's a body image coach. Mm. So I contacted her and I ended up working with her for, for quite a while, for like a year and a half. Um, and really worked to reestablish my feelings about my body not just as something that other people look at mm-hmm. and respond to, but as something that I live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an ongoing process. You know, mm-hmm. I was in a really painful place for a lot longer than I've been in a progressively healing place. So, you know, on any given day, I could be anywhere on this timeline. But so I I started talking to her in terms of body image, but very quickly that also began to involve sexuality. And thank God she was a very sex positive person. So, you know, my next step on my trip was to spend uh, a a week or two in Washington, D.C. because, you know, just to go see all the monuments and the (laughs) library and all this stuff. Um, And while I was there, I went on to a dating app and I you know, to my surprise, met this guy who wanted to meet me for drinks. And um, we met. And when we were partying, you know, it was, it was a fine evening. Um, I had no, (laughs) no imagination that this was a love connection. Mm. But, you know, we enjoyed each other fine. And so he said that he wanted to see me again before I left. And so I was having a session with Jesse the next day and I said to her, um, would it be awful if I got together with him again and had sex with him? Like, I don't even really know him. Would that be a terrible thing to do? And I will never forget her response, which was, I'm really interested that you're phrasing this in terms of would it be terrible? Rather than, would it be fun? (laughs) Which is brilliant. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I ended up, he ghosted me. I never saw him again. Oh. (laughs) But, uh, which I was really disappointed about in the moment. Um, Mm -hmm. But it opened, again, it was like this reframing of sex is allowed to be fun. I am allowed to enjoy my body because it is my body. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And... So then I started, and I was very, very careful. I vetted people really carefully before I met them. I like I took all of the safety protocols. I had people who knew where I was going and, and you know, and had mm-hmm. information. But I started allowing myself to go on dating apps, and Craigslist personals was still a thing then, mm-hmm. um, which it's not now. But um, to start making connections with people and doing things like meeting a couple to have a threesome (laughs) or, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there was just all sorts of stuff that happened during that time. Mm -hmm. Um, The reason that I ended up settling in Portland is because there's this amazing community here 
um, called Sex Positive Portland. And there are actually are chapters around the country and around the world. Um, but they actually what I got to Portland and I I'd been on the road at this point for five ish months. And um, so I was like, I'm just going to go on meetup and see if there are any if there's anything to do with sex. So we literally went to meet up and put the word sex in the search bar um, because I had heard that Portland was a pretty progressive city and it turned sex positive Portland came up and mm-hmm. they have all of these events, not right now during COVID of course, but um, just many events a week that are education events around sex and sexuality, uh, education or events around kink, um, then experiential events, learning about how to set boundaries and hold your boundaries, learning how to communicate with people. And then once you you like go through those and you really have a good set of skills, then you get to start attending events that are clothing optional and where mm-hmm. touch occurs. Um, and there are various levels. So some, you know, at the lower levels, it's touch that moves sensual energy but no genital contact at the Mm -hmm. highest level it includes you know genital contact i think but not penetration i can't can't quite remember but Mm -hmm. um yeah so that was where i started to really dig in and um one of the most profound things for me was that i was having these experiences with people around the country who clearly had absolutely no connection with each other. Mm-hmm. And they were saying the same words to me over and over. Like, your skin is so soft. Mm-hmm. I love your ass. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, things about my physical body and the beauty and sensuality that they found in my physical body, which was something I had been so frightened of for so long. And hearing those hearing those words from so many different people allowed me, it didn't get me to thinking, oh, oh, I have such an amazing ass, you know, like, (laughs) it did not get me there. But it got me to the point of being able to say, they believe, I am going to choose to believe that they believe that I have an amazing ass. I'm not Mm -hmm. ready to believe it myself yet. But I'm going to choose to believe that they're not lying to me. Mm -hmm. And over time, that made a really, really big difference for me. Mm-hmm. People I know are really, I get this message a lot in my DMs and, and um, it, you know, client calls and stuff that mm-hmm. um, people are concerned, well, am I allowed to let other people be part of my healing? Aren't, uh, aren't I supposed to do this for myself? Like mm-hmm. I'm supposed to find my own beauty before anybody else can see it. Mm-hmm. I actually think that's a really damaging message because there are a lot of us, me included, who were not properly mirrored as children. And right. you cannot expect somebody who was not given a skill to suddenly be like, oh, I know how to do it and I'm going to feel better about myself. That is not how this works. Right. Right. Well, it's none of it is linear. Mm -hmm. And and as you mentioned, you still grapple with some of it now. Oh, yeah. It's it's more of a continuum, Mm -hmm. it sounds like. And you're in a relationship now? Yes, I am. And how long have you been together? We are coming up on three years. 
Oh, wow. So how does that work when, uh, I mean, this is a naive question, but how does that work when you're sex positive? And are you still, is it like, do you have different rules for your relationship or, you know, that, that, uh, more, more conventional relationships usually have? So it's not a naive question at all. I'm really glad you asked it. (laughs) (laughs) So being sex positive does not mean polyamorous or open or anything in particular it simply means that you are choosing to see sex as a natural part of who you are and not something to be ashamed of Mm -hmm. so being sex positive there are people in the sex positive community who are asexual Mm -hmm. who choose to not have sex with people but love being in the energy and environment of people who can understand that touch is still important and that touch Mm -hmm. doesn't have to automatically mean sex. Being sex positive is all about learning how to use your words, how to communicate about what you want and what you don't, how to establish boundaries, all of that stuff. So my partner and I, when we got together, we were both dating Mm non-monogamously, but I always knew that at heart I am a a monogamous person. I definitely am open to playing with my partner and other people, but I would never want to play without my partner. Mm -hmm. So, you know, prior to COVID, there were a couple of times that we went to sex clubs. We never actually um, interacted with anybody else. We mostly just um, watched Mm-hmm. You know, we basically were in the sexual space as voyeurs, mm-hmm. which is a perfectly legitimate sex positive activity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, voyeurs are there to fill the needs of exhibitionists and exhibitionists <laughs> are there to fill the needs of voyeurs. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay. Oh. <laughs> um, so, yes, he and I are monogamous with the agreement that at a moment, you know, at moments when both of us are feeling into it, when both of us are feeling stable and centered in our relationship, that we can go to a sex party, that we mm-hmm. can go to a sex club, that we can go to other sex positive. And, and sex club and sex positive are not necessarily synonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can go into those sexual spaces to experience the sexual energy and still maintain our personal agreements. Um, And those agreements, we also, and this is very much, you know, something that's important to me. If, for instance, here in Portland, during non-COVID times, there's um, a monthly event where people who are into BDSM will get together and um, they'll have what they call tastings, which means that somebody sort of will will let you experience for a couple of minutes whatever it is they do whether it's spanking or you know there's Mm -hmm. sort of a wide variety of things and all of it is very consent based you have a negotiation before before they do the tasting so they understand what you want to experience how much etc um so before covid he and i would occasionally go to this monthly event And before we went, every single time, this was not a one and done conversation. This was a literally every single time before we walked into the room, we would sit down and have a conversation that says, okay, where are you today? How are you feeling today? Mm -hmm. Are you okay if I experience a tasting today? 
Mm-hmm. Yes, no. If no, okay, great. I'm not going to do it. There's always next month. Mm-hmm. If yes, okay, great. How like how far are you okay with me going? Are you okay with me um, being nude? Or do you want me to keep my clothes on while I experience this thing? And mm-hmm. we would have that kind of conversation every single time before we walk in a room because things change from day mm-hmm. to day, let alone from month to month. You know, maybe And this that's a month... good reminder, you know, for relationships in general yes. that, uh, you know, it's easy to, for me sometimes to feel uh, extreme in my thinking or black and white. And it's important in a relationship. And it's important for me to remember the nuance and that I change all the time. And so do the people I love. Exactly. You know, this month, because I've gotten softer during this time of lockdown and, and less activity, and because uh, the end of the year tends to be a hard time for me because that's when my mom passed. Mm-hmm. I have been very kind of needy with my partner mm-hmm. of like, are you sure you're really still attracted to me? Uh, you know, I've gained weight. I'm not sure mm-hmm. how I, I, I'm not sure that I believe you when you tell me that you say you love me. And he knows that this is one of my, you know, one of my scary points. Mm-hmm. And so he will, you know, give me that uh, reinforcement that I need. There are other times when I'm fine in my body this is not one of them mm-hmm. and and because we have open communication he can meet me where I am in those moments rather than me just going into a complete tizzy and him being like what just happened mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly which you know? is really communication it's yeah. important it's and and I think I mean that's a skill you've learned right I mean I don't oh, know yeah. that you, you could have just come out and done that right away when you first started being in relationships such an important point these are all learnable skills this Mm -hmm. is not something that you just come out of the womb knowing how to do Mm -hmm. pretty much that's not true of anybody people who have these skills either grew up in a family that allowed them to learn it innate in a way that feels innate Mm -hmm. like it just was so much a part of their family culture that they picked it up or they've had to learn it after the fact Right. But if you don't have these skills, it does not mean that you are broken or you cannot get them. You are entirely capable of developing these skills. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else right before we finish that you'd want people listening who have uh, experienced disruptions in their sexuality and their sense of self, which is kind of a joke as so many of us have, but (laughs) (laughs) um, (laughs) yeah, what's a what's a really good first step for anyone? I think the first most important thing is for you to hear that you are lovable exactly the way you are today. You don't need to lose 10 pounds. Mm -hmm. You don't need to become more sexual, less sexual, have different fantasies, want things different than you. Like you don't have to change anything about you. You are perfect as a sexual being exactly how you are today. If your partner is telling you that your sexual desires are wrong, Mm -hmm. it's your partner that's wrong. Mm -hmm. If your partner is telling you that you're not sexual enough, Mm -hmm. it's your partner that's wrong. Mm -hmm. 
that doesn't mean that you just stand up and like, you're wrong, screw you. Like there are other ways to handle that. Mm-hmm. There are more effective ways that I think people hear that and they think, oh my God, that means I have to leave my relationship. No, that's not what that means at all. Mm-hmm. Um, there are ways to work with what you've got in your relationship in mm-hmm. order to get to a healthier place. But you are perfect exactly the way you are today. If you don't know what you want, there's nothing wrong with you. You are not broken. Mm-hmm. You probably haven't been given the space to ask yourself what you really want because you've been so busy performing for mm-hmm. everybody else. <laughs> That's a good way of describing it. Yeah. So, so Leah, where can where would you like people to find you and to follow you? Yeah. So the podcast is Good Girls Talk About Sex. And on it, I interview women about their sex lives. <laughs> so we get into all the nitty gritty. Um, and then I also talk about some of my own history, answer people's questions, all that kind of thing. Um, so that's Good Girls Talk About Sex. My website is leahcarey.com, L-E-A-H-C-A-R-E-Y. And you can find me on socials at Good Girls Talk, um, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you so much. And I'll have all those links in the show notes and on the website and tag, tag you when this episode drops. Oh. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for being willing to share your story with me today and for helping shed light on how you got to this place of healing and how you continue to do that. Well, thank you for having this space. I'm, I'm honored that you invited me. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening. 